a series that we call the Psalms of David uh, through the summer, and, and it's been a great time. There's a part of me that just wants to kind of camp here, uh, but we won't. We have some, some stuff ahead of us as a church, but the idea for this, this time, this series, what we have done is we've taken five Psalms, and we've looked at these five songs, Psalms in light of their backstory, so, so in other words, we, we've asked ourselves, what was going on in David's life as he wrote these words? And we've been on this journey. We've, we've tackled four psalms together. Um, and today, we're going to finish with our final psalm, which is Psalm 63, the, the one that we began our time with uh, this morning. Uh, if you, by the way, if you've missed any, I know that we have been a traveling church this summer. Uh, we've been uh, gone and, and traveling, and which is all good. I wanted to remind you that you can catch up uh, with us. We have all of our message, any and all of them, all of our messages online. And so you can listen online. You can find us through our app, or you can find us through iTunes. And that's a good way, if you're traveling, you know, to stay connected with us, especially if you're in a community group. So you can kind of stay connected um, as, as we move through. Uh, this morning, we're ending with what I believe to be the perfect psalm for us to end with. This psalm uh, historically has meant a great deal to the early church. The reason we started our service the way that we did this morning um, is because this psalm is referred to as the morning psalm. Not morning as in crying, but morning as in early day, okay? The morning psalm. The church has historically called it this because Every week that they gathered, centuries and centuries ago, they began their time of worship with this psalm. They would recite it, they would sing it, they, would, uh, they, they committed it to memory, um, and they would begin their time of worship with the song. In many ways, this was a call to worship psalm for them uh, in, in the ancient church. So historically, it's, pop, it's been a, a familiar, a popular psalm. Just think about this. For centuries and centuries and centuries, our brothers and sisters in Christ have spent time in this psalm and have committed it to memory, have cherished it, have quoted it to together for strength and encouragement. There's a great deal of, I don't know, I love hearing things like that. When I read that, I was like, praise God, you've, you've brought us here to finish our time together in the Psalms with, with this. Um, and so like I said, Psalm 63, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and, and get them there. We're going to camp there this whole morning. And while you're doing that, let's get caught up on the backstory just a little bit. So David's life, what was going on in his life? As you might expect, his life was not awesome when he wrote this psalm. It seems like every psalm that we have looked at, the backstory for David has been tragedy. So many of them are that. And this one happens to be another one like that. So at this point, David is king. He is king. He is ruling over uh, Israel. He is the king. However, his family life is not going well at this moment in time. He has a son, one of his sons is named Absalom, and uh, Absalom decides that he can do a bit of a better job ruling than his dad. Uh, and, and so he starts a revolt. Okay, and, and Absalom was not necessarily a bum. He was a, a good-looking guy. He was a charismatic guy, and the people liked him. And so this revolution kind of took ground and gained momentum. And uh, because of that, 
It had forced David to flee from his own throne as king. It forced him to flee uh, with some of his people. You don't have to turn here, but um, 2 Samuel 15, 23 paints the picture for the scene that this psalm was written in. Uh, 2 Samuel 15, 23 says, And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king, that's King David, crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. So you can see, you can picture the scene. It's somber. There's weeping as, as the people are traveling out of their city and on their way, led by their king, into the wilderness, into the wilderness. Now, uh, for David, if we can put ourselves in his situation, there's no closure for him in this moment when he writes this psalm. He's still in the wilderness. The, he, he, his son, who he loves, has risen up against him. His throne, uh, to which God has called him, is abandoned. Um, there's, there's, he's in a season where he had no idea how he was going to find resolution. He didn't know what was coming next. As you notice in your Bible, whether that be on screen or paper, uh, you should see what's called a superscript in this psalm. A superscript, it can sometimes be referred to as verse zero. So it's the all caps most of the time right before the psalm. And, and what it does is it gives us kind of a context for our psalm. So if you read the superscript of, of Psalm 63, it says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. That wilderness of Judah moment in David's life is that moment that we've been talking about. So in the wilderness, in Judah, this is when this psalm that we're going to read uh, this is where God birthed that in David. Um, as you can imagine, David is flooded, has to be flooded with all kinds of human emotions in this moment when he writes the psalm, um, waiting on God literally in the wilderness. Now, I assume not many of us, if any of us, have been to the wilderness in Judah. Anyone? That is awesome. So maybe we can ask them about this later. It's called the wilderness for a reason. It's called the wilderness for a reason. It's, it, it no doubt, here's my point, matches David's emotional condition. When he wrote this song, psalm, it is fitting that he be in the wilderness in Judah. It's no palace of Jerusalem, but it's in the wilderness moment that he writes this psalm. Now, as we look at this psalm, we're going to divide it into three parts. Okay, three parts. The first section will be in verses one through four. We're going to call it desire. The second section we're going to call satisfaction. That's verses 5 through 8. And the last one will be confidence in verses 9, 11. These are all going to build on each other, and they're all crucial. And I hope that we, we get to unpack that a little bit. We're going to start, though, with our first one, which is desire. And I'm going to do that by sharing a story. Um, as most of you know, uh, we just got back from Ethiopia. And it was an incredible, incredible uh, trip just a couple weeks ago. Uh, we spent most of our time meeting with ministry leaders and pastors there, uh, talking about the potential of us planting churches in Ethiopia. So we went with a specific goal in mind, and God just really opened unexpected doors. It was an incredible time. Uh, apart from the meetings, though, we were given the opportunity to see firsthand the need for the gospel in one of the cities that we were, that we were looking to plant churches in. It's a city called uh, Bahadar. 
And um, one of the moments that I will never forget, it is one of the most memorable moments I think that I've had in life. It is by far the most cross-cultural moment I have ever had in my life. Uh, We were invited to come to, I say we were invited, we weren't. We showed up to an Eastern Orthodox uh, temple gathering uh, worship ceremony. It's probably not what they call it, but it paints a picture of what we, what we walked into. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Eastern Orthodox Church in Ethiopia, uh, they hold to some very different doctrinal beliefs than we do. Um, in fact, there is, a, there is a significant animosity between evangelicals and the Orthodox. They're not on the same team, uh, especially here. Um, just to give you a quick perspective, the Orthodox Church, what, they, what, what it, they've done is they've incorporated many of the Old Testament practices in worship, and they've kind of married them with a little bit of saint worship, a little bit of legalism, and a lot of bit of idolatry. And that's kind of where they found themselves. So it kind of looks and smells Christian, but as you step in, you realize something is not right about the message that's being communicated here. Um, in the city that we're looking, like I said, is Bahadar, and this city is, is dominated by the Orthodox Church. Um, the Ark of the Covenant of the New Testament, it's believed to be in this region. So there's this historical tie in this region. In fact, for most of them, you get the sense that to be Ethiopian is to be Orthodox. It's a part of their culture, their DNA of who they are. And so we were excited about the privilege uh, to step in uh, to one of their, their services to see what it's about. So to do this, we had to get on a boat. I brought some pictures uh, with me. Um, so we had to get on a boat. This is not our boat, but this is a boat that passed us uh, going to the same place. We had to get on a boat. It was about a 45-minute boat ride in this little boat um, across. We had to make it to an island. So all of their monasteries are on little islands. I believe there are 33 of them on this lake. And the big one is the one we went to. Uh, It was about a 45-minute boat ride. And you can go to the next picture. And by the way, for those of you who might be listening online, children's workers, ask me. I can provide these pictures. but this was about a 45-minute boat ride. When we pulled up, we see a boat. We'll see another picture of this in a little bit, but, well, there it is. You can go to it. That boat, all those people somehow were in that little boat. So this boat, I think, realistically, should have fit maybe, I would say, 150. Maybe. There are more than 150 people. There are people sitting on the engine on exhaust pipes dangling off the roof. There are kids sitting on window seals. There are, it was unbelievable. So when we pulled up, we saw this scene. Our boat is one of those boats that's currently on the, on the dock right there. And um, we, we got out and we, we docked and we made our way through those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. As you can see, there are two people that look different in this picture, <laughs> Craig and, and myself. Um, hold it down. It was good. We, um, so we trekked uh, what was about, it's hard to judge because we, we got off the boat and we walked up uh, this trail. It was a single path trail and it was real rocky, muddy, sloshy, was definitely wearing the wrong shoes for it. So I was struggling and it was about a mile, maybe two 
up to the top, and the, the temple was there in, in the middle. And um, so a- after we got to the top, we thought that this was crowded. Like, I was super uncomfortable. There were dudes in my chest. There were, I mean, it was real, real weird. Then we got here. Uh, this is the actual temple. So you walk into this gate. There are thousands of people huddled around this temple, and it was the, the day they were worshiping their saint, and I, I couldn't get the name because it was hard to understand. Um, but they were worshiping their saint on, on this day, and the, the people were on their face just crying out to God to hear them. Um, it was one of the... It was one of the craziest moments I think I've ever been in. So we walked in, and just to see the, the, the crowds of people, um, you instantly felt the heaviness of the moment. I'm not going to lie. It felt heavy when you walk through, and you're a part of that. And um, our guide kind of took us up at the front. So if you can imagine where that curtain is, see you know a couple white dudes walking around uh, up there. It was very uncomfortable, uh, to be honest. And um, they they didn't really like us being there, and so we we didn't stay long. But one thing we noticed in their in their service is they were absolutely passionate. Um, they were desperate for God to speak. Desperate. I, completely. De- they sacrificed a lot to get here. They sacrificed a ton to cram on that little boat or one of those boats to get to this, this island, and they were on their face worshiping. I was overwhelmed by the, de- the desire that I saw in these people's lives. I was completely overwhelmed. It was a desire that honestly I don't often see in myself, and it's a desire that I honestly don't often see in many of our churches. It broke my heart because they are this devoted and this passionate. They have this much desire for idolatry. They poured themselves out for it with everything they had. And yet we have the one true God of the universe with access to him through his son. We have what they were so desperate for. We have it. But one thing we don't often have is desire, is that kind of desire. And as I got off the boat, I was just hit with this somber realization that this is the kind of desire that David speaks to in the first part of the psalm that this is the kind of desire that, God, that David is expressing to God. And he says in, in verse one, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Do you hear the language? I earnestly seek you you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. It's that desire as in a dry and weary land, aka wilderness, which David just so happens to be. He knows this feeling all that all too well. And with that same level of desperation and passion and desire, David is calling out to just to be in the presence of God, just to worship God. 
He's desperate. And then he moves to verse three. He says, because, of, because your steadfast love is better than life. I love that. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Your, your love is better than life. Even the good things in life, your love is better than life. It's desire. That God had taken David to the wilderness as this incredible object lesson for him to know what being truly desperate is. And he's in this object lesson, and David realizes the depth of his desire for God. Now, notice something important, and this is a good clarification before we move further. Um, David is not desiring God for God's things. David is not desiring God for God's stuff, okay? Um, He could have. I mean, think of, I think of my own tendency. If I was in this place, my prayer would probably be, give me rest, give me protection, give me my son back, give me my kingdom back, make all this right, provide, correct this mess, give me your blessing, all of those things. They're not bad. But that's not where David begins. David doesn't begin there. His desire for God was for God himself, not for his things. He desired God with the intensity of a thirsty man in the wilderness, that's where he started his, his search with desire. And so the question for us before we move any further is, where's your desire this morning? If you were to quantify it, where is your desire this morning? Even better question perhaps is, is what is your desire for this morning? Is it for God or for God's things? Is it for God or God's stuff? And let me, let me say kind of one more thing before we move into part two. Um, The desire that we read here in in Psalms that David is writing about comes from a man who knows God, who has a relationship with God, who truly, actively, personally knows God, because the desire is the foundation for everything else that we're going to talk about this morning. Everything else. It must begin here, and it can't I'll say it like this. You can't conjure up that kind of desire apart from Jesus Christ. You can't just conjure it up in yourself. Um, um, if, you, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, nothing that we are going to talk about from this point on is going to be able to be grab, grabbed because it starts here. This is the foundation, the desire for God. In, in other words, you can't fake it until you make it with this one. You can't just go through motions and fake it till you make it. It is something that God, the desire for God is something God places in us through his spirit, through the work of Christ. And we can't fake that or conjure it up in ourselves. God wants to authentically transform us. I mean, really transform our life transform our, our desires and emotions. I, one of my heroes of the faith, one of my absolute heroes in the faith, is a pastor theologian named Jonathan Edwards. Uh, and Jonathan Edwards called this process that we're talking about right now a conversion of our affections. A conversion of our affections. That our affections, what we want, what we desire, because of Christ, are transformed. Have any of you experienced that? When you come to know Jesus, all of a sudden the things that you once wanted, you don't really want that anymore. Or the things that weren't even on your radar, now you have this desire for. That's what Jonathan Edwards is is talking about. 
that Jesus changes our affection. And if you're here and that has never taken place in your life, if you're just honestly here and that's never happened in your life, what I wanna do is, I know this isn't normal, but we're gonna push the pause button and I just wanna pray for you, pray with you. Here in this moment, because this is the foundation for what we're gonna talk about later, I just want us to push the pause button and if that is you, I want the opportunity to just pray together. Right where you are, I just want to pray together as, as a church. Will you bow your heads with me? God, we confess that on our own, we don't desire you. We confess that we, we choose to go our own way. We confess that we're sinners. We ask for your forgiveness. And God, we thank you for sending your son. I thank you for sending Jesus to take my sin. We thank you for taking our mess in exchange for your life, in exchange for your love. I thank you that through Christ that now we have access to you. And now I pray that you stir in us, create in us a desire for you, a desire for what you desire. Create in me a passion, in, create in us a passion in our hearts that only you can fill. And then God, please, would you fill it? It's in your son's name that we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So it all begins with, it's all founded on desire. Um, and I promise I will be quicker in the next two sections. Everyone here who is a C kind of personality type is going, how's he going to pull this off? Don't worry. I got this. I got this. Um, let's look at sec section two. Section two, we're going to see ultimately that desire for God leads to ultimate satisfaction in God. So when we desire him, we see ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction from him. Uh, Psalm 63, we'll start in verse five. It says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. I will remember you in my bed. I meditate on you in the watches of the night for you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Now keep in mind who, these, who the words uh, here are coming from. David is a desperate man in the uncomfortable wilderness and he is saying, I, am, I will be satisfied with you as with fat and rich food. Um, when we started, when I first started running, I love running, but when I first started, uh, Candace and I decided to sign up for a half marathon. Uh, it was our first race. We had no idea what we were getting into. That was hard. And uh, we signed up for it. Uh, we, um, it was in downtown Dallas. And uh, you had to be at the starting line pretty early for this, these kind of races. There's no parking down there. And so uh, what we did is we got up at about, I think it was like 4.30 or so, and we had like a breakfast and then we needed to head out. We didn't want to drive because we live 45 minutes north and there's no parking. So we drove to a train station in one of the north suburbs of Dallas and we waited on the first train to take us downtown uh, to avoid parking. So the official race started at eight ish. It might've been 8.30. Uh, and we, we, it was our, like I said, my first race ever. And honestly, <laughs> felt like this race took forever. It killed us. It would never end. It was just never ending, but we did it. 
So we crossed the finish line. We got just a few of the little snacks that they handed out. But we knew that we had the long walk back to the shuttle that, that would then take us to the train, that would then take us back to our car, that would then take us to food. So as you can see the, the trajectory here. Um, and so we, we finally made our way through the shuttle. We got on the train, and hunger just crushed us. Uh, we must have looked bad, too, by the way, because we had a couple people that would, like, walk across the train holding a banana and be like, you need this, you need this. Like, we must have looked visibly shaken. Um, but we were just dying. It was, it was fun. And um, so finally, the train arrives. We get into our car, and we take our car to the first Whataburger. I mean, everything in me, every cell in my body was craving a hamburger. Like, it was just bad. I was craving that, that hamburger. And I can't describe to you the satisfaction of that first bite. Remember, <laughs> I hadn't eaten since 5 a.m., right? And I had done some work since then. That first bite, it was amazing. I ate way too quickly and way too much, got super sick. But that first bite was really, really really good. Um, that feeling is just a small... Are you hungry yet, by the way? I just got really hungry. Um, that, that is a small glimpse. That feeling is, that David describes for that fat and rich food is just a small glimpse of the satisfaction that we see in our Savior. Just a small glimpse of the satisfaction that is ours in Christ when our deepest desires, the desires you don't even know you have, are met perfectly and completely. That desire um, that is satisfied in, in Christ. And, I mean, let's be honest, our culture, we, we are continually looking for satisfaction in a lot of other ways. We're continually looking for ways to satisfy ourselves apart from Christ, whether it be in relationships, hobbies, um, sex, our job, whatever, you fill in the blank. We, we have these things that we run to to try to get that satisfaction. And these things, honestly, apart from Christ, they're dead ends. And I don't have to tell you that. I don't have to, we know they're dead ends. We, we run after them and ultimate satisfaction, when we, see, when we seek for ultimate satisfaction apart from anything else apart from Christ, there's a word for it. It's idolatry. When we seek satisfaction, fulfillment in, in any other area apart from Christ, it is idolatry in our hearts. And, and here's the incredible thing, though. Ultimate satisfaction that's found in Christ is not and is never, hear me, based on circumstances. It's never based on our circumstances. We have the ability, like David, to be in the middle of the wilderness and be fully satisfied in Christ. That resonates with me. We have the ability to be in the driest moment of our life and be satisfied in Christ apart from any of the other circumstances that we are in. There's something beautiful in that when our desire for God leads to ultimately satisfaction in God. And often, this is a side note, doesn't God always, he uses those wilderness moments to bring us even closer to realizing that. It's like he uses the wilderness to take away all the distractions other than himself so that when we go through them, we see Jesus more clearly. And David is there uh, in this psalm saying, 
that God is really compared to the lavish meal for a hungry man dying of starvation. That's where David is at. This beautiful imagery that our desire for God, ultimately, it leads to satisfaction in God. So when we desire him, we will be satisfied in him. And that moves us then to our last section. Uh, And what we're going to see is satisfaction in God leads to ultimate confidence in God. It leads to confidence in God. Um, Verse 9, it says, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. We need to pray like that more often. Um, They shall be given over to the power of the sword. He's fired up, and they shall be a portion for jackals. He's serious, but listen to this, uh, verse 11. But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This does not sound like the words of a desperate wilderness wanderer, does it? It just does not sound like that man who's trucking along, weeping, going into the wilderness away from his throne. This doesn't sound like that man. This sounds like a man who is confident in his God, completely confident in his God. Even though he doesn't know the way it's going to pan out, even though he doesn't know the future, you see here this confidence that the God who he desires and the God who satisfies him perfectly, that he can be confident in him because he knows all things and he's in his hands. Just like the way that we seek satisfaction in other venues, um, in other places, I don't probably have to tell you this, but you know that we try to seek confidence in other places as well. Uh, we have bank accounts. We have, which it's not wrong. We have plans. That's not wrong. Um, we have abilities. We, we're confident in our security and safety that we've created for ourselves and our family. We are confident in our health. We're confident in so many things that we place our confidence in. And this is why, hear me, so often when any of those things fall apart, we fall apart. When any of those things start to fall apart, we fall apart. When our bank account starts to go negative, we fall apart because it's chipping away at something that we have held as our confidence. We search for, we place our confidence in so many other things. And, and think about this. I think this is a good summary of where our culture is, is that we, our desire can be in the wrong places. Our satisfaction is in the wrong things. Our confidence is placed in the wrong place. And, and then what we do is we try to add a relationship with God on the side of all of that. And we wonder why in the world we can't find purpose and meaning in life. It's not working for us. I have this God thing over here, but we've placed our our desire, our passion, our satisfaction, our confidence in other things. And that's why as as our lives do this, so do we. So do we, that we become circumstantial. But when our desire is in Christ, when our satisfaction is in Christ, when our confidence is in Christ, nothing and no one can shake you. And nothing can separate you from the love of God through Jesus Christ. Nothing. And so you are unshakable, and it starts with desire. It starts with desire, that we desire God above all else, and as that happens, our deepest desires are satisfied through Christ. And so our satisfaction is in him, and as that happens, our confidence in him begins to grow, and we become a confident people for the glory of God. It starts with the desire for God, and it leads us to satisfaction, which leads us to an ultimate confidence And God, would you pray with me? God, thank you that you have stepped in. For some of us, we may be in that wilderness moment right now. 
And help, uh, for those of us who are in that place, help us to realize that the words of this psalm were written by a man who was in a wilderness moment. And that even though we are in a wilderness moment, that we have the ability through your son to be confident, to be fully satisfied in you. God, I, I, I pray that, that our desire, our confidence, our satisfaction is in you and not in the other things that we try to place our confidence in. Teach us how to follow you and desire you above all else. And as your word says, all these things will be added as we seek your kingdom first. Transform us from the inside out. Convert our affections that we are affectionate and passionate and we desire you above everything else. And it's for your glory that we pray. And it's in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, we'll church, before we take off, first of all, thank you for being here. Um, Before we take off, though, I want to um, just take a few minutes to chat as a church family. Uh, A few minutes, not long. Um, Just to give you a heads up, one on uh, next week a little bit, um, but but also just give you a heads up for where we're where we're going. So as many of you know, um, as all of you know now, uh, next week is special, and we've we've kind of identified August sixteenth as the as the time that we're going to talk about what's next for us as a church, and it's already midway through August, which is just insane, uh, crazy, and I. I mentioned this, I'll say it again. This is an exciting time to be a part of our church. It is an exciting time to be a part of our church. And I believe God's at work. And next week, we get to talk about a few of the ways that God is working and God is, is moving. Um, so from the beginning here at Stone Oak, it's been in our DNA, it's our heart that we will be a church that starts churches who start churches who start churches. Okay, that's been in our DNA from the beginning. We believe, I believe in it from the bottom of my heart. I believe that church planning is the most effective and essential way for us to fulfill the Great Commission. I believe it. Um, we, we say this, that I believe, we believe that our health is based more on our sending capacity than it is our seating capacity. And we believe it from the bottom of our heart. And, and as we... I've talked a lot, uh, dreamed about us planting a church and starting a church, and one of the things that I get asked is a great question. It's how healthy do we have to be before we plant? And my, my response is always, I believe that part of, part of us becoming healthy is planting. And that's where we are as a church. That's what, what you're, you're stepping into. There's a stat that only 4% of church plants ever plant. That stat is terrible. It's absolutely terrible. I hope to never be in the 96% of that stat. Um, To speak to this, this is our vision. We'll be a church who equips and sends people out on gospel-centered mission in their communities and who continually plants churches locally and globally who do the same. That's our, that's our heart. That's our vision. And, and I'm overwhelmed and grateful to see God working to accomplish this. First of all, globally. So we said locally and globally. Globally, as we've talked about with Ethiopia, there are a lot of more details, but God is opening the door for us to step in and be a part of planting churches across the globe. It's unbelievable. 
And we're gonna be talking about that as a church here in the upcoming months about how we're gonna step into that. But number two, locally. Locally, are you ready for this? I was really timid. It's like, <laughs> yes. Are you ready for this? <laughs> All right. So next week, we get the privilege, get the opportunity, we get the joy to introduce um, to you um, our first church planner and his family. Yes, please. Mike and Ariel Kraft and their beautiful family are uh, moving from Connecticut to San Antonio, Texas. So that's a climate change, um, especially now in this season. Uh, but they are moving to, to hear and to answer a call on their life to plant a church. Um, we were connected through the EFCA, which is our network. He's an EFCA-funded planter, and so think of him as kind of like a church planting missionary, uh, in a sense. And he will be joining our staff for 18 months, uh, starting next month. He will be joining our staff for 18 months. And in this time, we are gonna pour into him and send him out hopefully well with his team. And we are going to pour into them with everything we have uh, to send them out well. Here's the reality. We are here today because a church did this for us. Um, I was a, a resident church planter at a church called Northeast Bible Church, and they poured in selflessly into me, into our team. And that's the reason that we are here today even talking about this, because God allowed us to launch in a healthy way. And now we're able to step in and, and hopefully do the same. Um, we get the privilege of doing the same. So through all of the assessments that Mike had to go through for all the interviews, all of that, we just felt like God was leading him here. We felt connected with him, and we believe and we're confident that God is working and moving in, in this to, um, to plant churches who plant churches, who plant churches, who plant churches, which is our, our vision. So I know that I just created 75,000 questions in each of your minds, and that is good. That is okay. Um, the reason I brought this up, and by the way, please find, I will never say no to a conversation about church planting, ever. So find me. If you have something pressing in your mind, please find me. I want to talk about this. Um, but here is why I told you this. I need you to know two things, okay? First of all, his family will be here next week, and here's what I need from you to do. Church, I want you to make him uncomfortably, I mean, make him uncomfortable with the amount of love that you show him and his family when they come in. Weird him out, okay? He is an extreme extrovert. This is gonna be hard to do. Weird him out. Show him love. Let's welcome him well. Welcome his family well. That means focus on them, get to know them, hear about them before we bombard them with questions, okay? So let's serve them well. Let's love them well um, next week. Uh, will you do that? Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> two, I want to leave us with a mental picture. I want to leave us with a mental picture. So, so we plant a new church in another area of San Antonio, you follow me? People continue growing and coming to know Christ here. And then God begins to draw people to himself at this new church. The new church begins to plant churches as we continue to plant. Um, I want you to think, in 10 years, we could see exponential growth in our city. 
not for our kingdom either, but for the kingdom in our city. We could see a movement that could change our community for the glory of God. We could see a movement begin that would engage our community with the gospel in unprecedented ways here in San Antonio, Texas. Are you ready to see God do that? I am. I am, and I believe God is bringing us right here so that we can do it. And so I want to invite you next week, um, please join us if at all possible as we look ahead uh, to what's next for us. And um, by the way, if you were uh, wondering if this would be a good week to invite a friend or a neighbor, please, this would be an excellent week too, because through this week, they will hear about what we're about as a church. This next week, we're going to be talking about who we are as a church. And so if you have someone that you would like to pray to invite, please do that next week. And plus, it's breakfast, so we'll feed them, and that makes them happy, and it's awesome. Um, But please invite um, to that. All right, I love you, church. We'll see you back next week for our exciting week. But until then, I hope you guys have a great, great week.